This is AutoLine Extra, available exclusively on the Internet. Here again is John McElroy. Joining me right now is John Casesa from Casesa Shapiro. You're an analyst, you're uh, an advisor, you're a, sure. an observer of the automotive I'm scene. I'm all three. That's right. I mean, I, I, my, as my career was as a Wall Street analyst writing research reports, buy, sell, hold, and now we advise companies and financial investors. So what's your outlook for the automotive industry? We just went through a year that none of us ever want to go through again. How bad, how good, how in between is 2010 going well, to be? Well, I think 2010 will be a very strong bounce off the bottom. And, and what I mean by that is you know, we're scrapping about 14 million cars a year, so we can't go too long just selling 10 million. And there's still a lot of incentive activity in the market. Credit is slowly becoming more available. Uh, consumer confidence is bottom starting to turn. So I think we're going to see between 11 and 12 million units in 2010. And that will be very powerful for profits because, as you know, John, all the companies throughout the value chain have slashed their break-even points. 9, 10, 11 million units. So a move from 10 million sales last year to 11 or 12 this year will ha cause margins to explode. Now, after that, you know, it may be a slow crawl back. We've got a lot of, you know, the American household is still very leveraged. Um, and leverage means they have a yeah, lot of debt. They got a lot of debt. They got a lot of debt. Interest rates are low. It'll probably they'll probably go up at some point. So it, it could be tough in the out years. But coming off the, what we've been through, it's going to feel like night and day. See, my fear for the industry is I agree with you totally. I, I think this this business is about to make more money than anybody ever believed possible. You're more bullish than I am. I yeah. Think. Yeah. But in any case, if and when that happens, my fear is that management goes, "Hey, we're geniuses. Look, we solved this thing." And all it's going to be is a temporary, perfect alignment of the planets that'll end, my guess, sometime around 2015. And then it, it's back to normal again, but they haven't planned for it going back to normal. Well, I think the better companies won't let that happen. And you know, you wonder about Ford, which, you know, the Ford family almost lost the company. I would be very surprised if success would spoil them in just one cycle. I mean, I would think that the memory is not that short. Um, you know, there's a risk of that. And, and, and related to this is that, you know, the government bailout is softened. I mean, the alternative was horrific. Mm -hmm. But the fact is it's also softened the blow. And, and there's a little bit of a message, and I hear this from some companies that say, you know, we made it through this. They sort of forgot about the fact they wiped out all the shareholders and all the creditors. Now we're back. And, um, and, and, and that's a little bit concerning if, if attitudes don't change. Because it's one thing to... Uh, get through the crisis, but you really change the way you do business, and that's what's necessary. And that's what we have yet to see. I we think. have yet to see that, I and mean, I agree I, with you. I, th I think Ford has, but you know, how sustainable is it once an Alan Mulally leaves, yep. and a company is making piles of money, and they've got all the money they need in the bank, and th that's where things seem to drift apart again. Well, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, Mulally, part of his effectiveness is institutionalizing this process of aligning resources, responsibility, and authority, making people accountable. And if, if they do that with the way they structure the business, the way they pay people, the way they account for their performance, that'll continue after he's gone. But if he left tomorrow, I would have a question mark. If it's three years from now, it'd be different. Right. Um, you know, the other companies have a lot of work to do. I mean, they've got a lot to prove. What's your assessment of General Motors right now then? You know, bringing in a guy like Ed Whitaker from AT&T, zero automotive background whatsoever, 
couple of uh, private equity guys on the board right now driving a very different dynamic at yep. the company, but what, what's your assessment of GM? Well, I think all of that is, is extremely positive. I mean, this is a company that was out of control without the government would have probably liquidated. I mean, they'd actually taken the world's greatest company when Ralph Sloan retired in 1956 and destroyed it. And, and so I, I think almost by definition, change is good. I think that these new people bring a discipline uh, that is imperative. That is an understanding of the cost of capital, the responsibility to shareholders, uh, the limits of the promises you can make to other um, stakeholders. And, and so I think it's a very good thing. Now, of course, they don't know a lot about the business and it's their job to surround themselves with people that do, attract, retain, and promote the best managers. And if they can do that, I think they'll be very successful. If they can't attract good people, whoever that new CEO is, or this guy, or that woman to fill those jobs, then it won't work. But so, I think it's far too early to tell. Yeah, and, and I totally agree with you that they need a lot more discipline at the managerial levels. But one of the things that I've observed in this industry over time is that cars are very expensive to develop, and you can never stop. You always have to be spending the money. And uh, too often in the past, certainly, Finance has said, well, you know, we're not really meeting our, our return on investment or return on capital employed, so you've got to start cutting this stuff, which is the kiss of death, because you save a little bit of money developing the car, but you're having to end sure. up incentivizing sure. it, and the whole thing goes down yeah. in a spiral. Well, that, that's, that's why you need great leadership as a vision of the whole business, because, I mean, Toyota penny pinches, uh, penny pinches or yen pinches, yeah. BMW does, Hyundai does, and yet their cars are full of content and quality, and they're up to date. In, at GM, I think what happened was when, when this company became dominated by finance, and that was re that really started in the late 60s, and by the 80s. After Sloan retired, is yeah, when it started. Yeah, about really? a decade after yeah. Sloan retired. And then it, when they became dominated by finance so that it was the decision making was so imbalanced, at GM, finance were in the show, and all the functional business uh, 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 disciplines that drive revenue, uh, manufacturing, design, engineering, marketing, those people became hired hands, second class citizens. And, and I think if you view the business exclusively through a financial lens, that's a mistake. You see, the good, the financial outcome is just that it's an outcome of doing the other things well. And I think there's a real opportunity to rebalance the thinking issue. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said there. I mean, a lot of wisdom. Financial results are the byproduct of coming out, Ab designing, engineering, absolutely. manufacturing, selling, and servicing great cars. And, and there's a difference between cost and value and price and value. And, and the key, I think, is to measure value. That's both the financial discipline, but that's very much an operating discipline. What's mm -hmm. the benefit versus what the cost, mm -hmm. as opposed to what the cost is alone. But it, again, when you have a, a financially driven system, you use cost accounting, which is great at capturing cost and there's no mechanism for capturing value. Yeah, I mean, I, that doesn't show up in the books. I, I think that's true, and I think GM is a company in my career that understood the cost line and not the revenue line. And, and even worse, and I think the reason why it, it failed, is the management understood the income statement, but not the balance sheet. Capital was free to GM. The shareholders mm -hmm. were an abstraction. They could always borrow as much as they needed at the lowest rates, because they had AAA credit rating. And, and so I think the discipline that Alfred Sloan had to earn a return acceptable to shareholders, because he was a shareholder, that discipline disappeared with each generation removed from him. Mm -hmm.
Okay, let's jump uh, horses here, so to speak. Chrysler, what's your outlook? Can they make it? What's your thinking with them tying well, up with Fiat? I, I, I think you know, the decision to save Chrysler was as much a political one as an economic one. The people in the task force will tell you that. And, and I think you could have made a very good argument that Chrysler should not have been saved, but it was politically unacceptable to do that. And why do I say that? Because we saved Chrysler in 1981, mm -hmm. right? And then they were back, yeah. right? So probably we had enough evidence to know that this was not a good investment. But we've made the decision, and I think now it's an uphill battle. And the government attracted the, really the only credible partner that showed an interest, Fiat. It's an uphill battle for Fiat, but it's a great deal for Fiat, right? There's no money down. Uh, Marchioni has an option on a big business in North America if he can be successful. If he's not successful, he's probably well positioned as a buyer of you know, the assets if it gets liquidated. So in my view, a brilliant deal on the part of Marchioni and on the part of the U.S. government, the only deal it can do. I can't handicap the odds yet. I, I guess I would say on paper, looks very difficult. These things usually don't work. Uh, in the near term, I think he's, he's sort of in a box. He really has no choice but to take Fiat product and badge him as Chrysler's, Chrysler products, badge him as Fiat's, and just do nothing more than that. What else can you do in the short term? Um, longer term, you know, he, even though the odds I think are not good, it's hard. It's risky to underestimate this CEO. Um, you know, they've been reasonably successful with Fiat since he got there. Fiat's not a world-class company. Th this is the only issues, reason we're paying but, any attention yeah. at all is Marchioni right. proved he did it with Fiat. Right. So now we're waiting to see, can he yeah. do it with Chrysler? If he had not done that, none of us yeah. would have it, an iota right. of hope for right. Chrysler. So they've got three years of runway in my estimation. And um, I do think the American market will get more accepting of European type product. But what I don't know is you know, how long it takes to build consideration for Americans to really say, I'll try that launcher-based pricer. Mm -hmm. Pretty nice product, but to a lot of Americans, why take the risk when there's so many blue chip alternatives? Okay, looking out at the Asians, uh, how do you see their prospects? Let, let's keep it focused on the American market, especially with, uh, in the case of the Japanese, uh, the yen getting yep. pretty strong against the dollar. Well, I think, uh, you know, the Japanese have a very large share here and, and you know, 25% share globally. And I think because they all have strong balance sheets and, and other great fundamentals of productivity, quality and technology, despite some of the setbacks, the mixed issues, I think even with the stronger yen, they, they will suffer from a profit standpoint, but they can, with those balance sheets, they can suffer quite a while and maintain their market position. I think the era of fast growth in North America for them is over. Mm -hmm. It's over because, one, they're already very big, and two, because the others have caught up. Mm -hmm. Many of the other companies have closed the gap competitively. So I guess I'd say I think the Japanese will hold their position. Um, probably a little bit more bullish on Honda than Toyota right now. Toyota's got a little bit of an identity crisis trying to adjust the new management and some of its near-term problems. But I think the Japanese are here to stay, positioned to defend themselves, but they're companies that are maturing. Now the other Asian, of course, is Hyundai Kia, and obviously, as you know, a very ambitious company. Still, there's a lot of white space with this company. It's not in all segments of the market. The product is still improving in leaps and bounds. And I think Hyundai, which is you know about a seven, six and a half, seven percent company in the U.S., it's going to be a ten percent company because they still have new segments of the market. Product's still getting better, and right now, because the Japanese yen's strong, the Korean won is relatively weak, they have a value advantage. Right.
Okay, and the Europeans, because the euro is sky high against the dollar right now. Yeah, and, and I think it's a little bit like the Japanese situation. It, it's very painful for these companies, but generally, especially the luxury guys, BMW, Mercedes, even Volkswagen, have strong balance sheets, so they can take the pain for a while. They're building more product here, and I, I, I think, you know, I've always underestimated the durability, the defensibility of their brands and franchises. Fact is, in the luxury market, you know, no one, there, there have been no successful global entrants in luxury. Even Lexus, which has been a huge success story, it's the US. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not Europe. And so, I think if they can get through that onslaught, which they have gotten through, they're in a very strong position. And therefore, you know, I don't see, when you put it all together, I don't see massive movements of market shares. I mean, the market was an oligopoly a decade ago. GM, huge company, huge share with a price umbrella, everybody priced under. Now, lines have converged. Six or seven companies with shares between 8 and 12%, 8 and 15%. And um, I could see movement upward for Hyundai, maybe movement for Volkswagen, um, maybe for Ford, but, but probably probably a market dynamic a lot like Europe, an intense rivalry, uh, the, the lines very close to each other for a long period of time. Right, instead of uh, two or three dominant players like we've seen in the U.S. market, maybe eight yeah, players pretty close in size. Yeah, I think, I think that's over. And uh, I see two other possibilities of really shaking things up and love to get your insight on this. Uh, China, maybe even India coming to this market, and the upstarts, the new little EV companies, the Teslas and the Fiskers and the like. Uh, let's start with the Chinese and potentially the Indians first. What's, do they have any hope of really making much of a move in this market? Not in the near term, and I mean, even intermediate term. I mean, I think they have the potential to be enormously disruptive in the global scene within the decade. Um, but the U.S. market is very competitive, very sophisticated. It's a relatively rich market, so a price advantage um, is probably not as meaningful if you don't have the technology or quality. So I think it will be a long road for the Chinese and the Indians here. They'll sell some nanos, they'll be a Chinese entrant, but you know these curves are sort of growth curves, and they'll start very slow in the period which we're really thinking about when it gets really steep is many years out there. Now, I do think it's going to happen because the, the, the chi China and India, those markets, by virtue of their enormous growth and size, will cause these companies to get very big in their domestic markets. And they will sort of ride that wave of domestic growth. And, you know, in a decade, you can have Chinese companies that are five million unit companies. That will position them to do anything mm -hmm. in the U.S. But I think we're looking out beyond five years. And, and the upstarts, the EVs, the Teslas and the, the like? I, I'm, I'm very uncertain on this. I, I guess my feeling is that either without a massive amount of continued government money to create an infrastructure and to you know, underwrite the invention that we need to make these things practical, without that or without uh, you know, a sustained increase in gas prices, I think these will be niche products. And um, I don't deny the, the the battery is improving. I don't deny that there is a strong consumer pull for cleaner cars. It's not just a regulatory push, but a consumer pull. But, but there are huge economic barriers here. And what would accelerate the acceptance of these things is high gas prices or government subsidies. And I don't think the U.S. 
has the stomach to spend what it takes. I mean, the pendulum swung to the left with this administration in Washington. We're writing a lot of checks right now. I don't think it'll always be that way. Real good. Well, John Cassese, thanks so much for coming in and sharing your Thank insight you, as John. to where this market is and where it's going. It's great to have you here. Nice to be here. Good to see you, John. You bet. Thank you.